Section 3 of the Pastoral Loves of Daphnis and Chloe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pastoral Loves of Daphnis and Chloe by Longus. Translated by George Moore. Book the Third. But when the Mytilineans heard that the Methymnians had sent ten ships to ravage their coasts, and when folk from the country came telling how their lands had been overrun and plundered, only one opinion prevailed amongst them, that these insults done to them should be avenged at once. And forthright three thousand foot and five hundred horse were sent overland against the Methymnians under the command of their captain, General Hippasus, it being thought hazardous to send them by sea so late in the year. The captain on his way thither refrained from ravaging the country of the Methymnians. Neither were the flocks and chattels of the peasants and shepherds plundered, for he deemed such acts to be those of a thief rather than of a captain, but marched straight for the town, hoping to find the gates open and unguarded. However, within six leagues of the town, he was met by a herald asking for a truce in the name of the Methymnians for having since heard from their prisoners that the Metilineans knew nothing of what had happened, and that the cause of the war could be traced to a quarrel in which some peasants had treated their young men roughly, they, the Methymneans, regretted having ventured on sharper reprisals than was prudent, and were ready to restore all the booty they had taken, wishing to live in peace and to trade by land and sea without fear or danger. Hippasus, therefore, sent back a messenger to Mytilene, though absolute power had been granted to him to treat with the enemy, and encamping within half a league of Methymne, he waited to receive orders from his town. Two days afterwards, orders were brought to him to accept all the stolen property as sufficient restitution, and to return without doing damage, for having had the choice between war and peace, they thought that peace was the better bargain and so terminated the war between Methymne and Mytilene, not less suddenly than it had been begun. Now winter, bitterer than war to Daphnis and Chloe, filled the fields and the roads with snow, keeping the peasants within their houses. Floods flowed from the mountains and were frozen in their course. The trees were like dead trees, and nothing of the earth was seen except about the springheads and streams. So they could not bring their flocks to the fields any longer, nor put their noses out of doors. But at cock-crow, kindling a great fire, some twisted thread, others wove cloth of goat-hair, or contrived snares with which to catch birds. Much care was needed to keep the cattle alive, to carry straw for them to eat it in the byre, to find liffage for the she-goats and the yews in the fold and mast and acorns for the pigs in the sties. All the same, few reproaches were heard against grim winter, for both tillers and shepherds were glad to be free from their daily work in the fields. Good meals and long sleeps made winter seem sweeter than summer, autumn or spring to all except Daphnis and Chloe, who could not keep out of their minds thoughts of the kisses exchanged under oak trees and pines, of happy moments in the fields and woods, and so vivid were their remembrances that they did not sleep at night, but lay awake thinking of the coming season. A rebirth it would be truly for them as for the world. 
On catching sight in the morning of the wallet in which they had carried their food, their hearts misgave them, and seeing the pitcher from which they had drunk in turn or a pipe, the gift of some bygone sweetheart, thrown into a corner, uncared for, forgotten, they were taken with sudden apprehension and regrets. So they prayed to the nymphs and to Pan to deliver them from the evil of cold days, and show the clear bright sunlight again to them and to their flocks, and while stuffering up prayers, they bethought themselves how they might see each other. Of course, Chloe could think of nothing, not altogether her fault, for she whom she believed to be her mother was always after her, talking to her of marriage, while showing her how to card wool and to turn the spindle. But Daphnis, having more leisure and more wit than the maid, bethought him of a plan to see her. In front of Dryas's house, by the wall of the courtyard, were two great myrtles and an ivy bush. The myrtles were near one another, their stems almost touching, so that the ivy embraced the two and spreading like a vine over one and the other, drawing the two together, it wove a roof of thick, shiny leaves, from which hung clusters of blackberries like grapes from a trellis, bringing hither multitudes of birds, who in the winter could find no food elsewhere. Hordes of blackbirds, hordes of thrushes, hordes of pigeons, hordes of starlings, and all the other birds that like ivy berries. On pretense of bird-catching, Daphnis left the house, his wallet filled with bread and cake, and to disarm suspicion completely, he carried pots of bird-lime and some snares. The distance between one house and the other was about half a league, and he found it hard to drag his feet through the deep soft snow, but love is not stopped by fire, water, nor even Scythian snows. And Daphnis did the journey without drawing breath, and arriving at Dryce's cottage shook the snow from his legs, set his snares, smeared the ivy twigs with lime, and posted himself to watch for the coming of the birds, and peradventure for Chloe's. As to the birds, they came in great numbers, and he took as many as he cared to gather, to kill and to pluck, but nobody left the house, neither man nor woman nor cock nor hen, all were within doors, drawn up cosily by the fire, and poor Daphnis was in grief that he should have come at so unlucky a moment. He was for pushing through the doorway, could he but have thought of some excuse, and he turned over in his mind what he had better say. I have come to get a light. How? Have you no nearer neighbors? I ask for bread. But thy wallet is full of food. Some wine. But the vintage is only a little time past. A wolf followed me. But where is the truck? I want to see Chloe. But such a confession could not be made to a father and to a mother. And of all these pretexts, everyone would awaken suspicion. It will be better that I should go home. I shall see here in the spring, not in the winter, since the gods don't wish it, and they do not seem as if they did. And having talked in this way to himself, and gathered up all he had taken of thrushes and other birds, he started on his way. But as if love had pity upon him, this is what happened. Dryas and his family were at table. The bread, the meat, the wine were before them, and so intent was everybody on eating and drinking that one of the sheep-dogs, seeing his chance, snatched a lump of meat and fled with it from the house. 
Dryas, very angry, for had not the dog taken his share of the food, caught up his stick and ran after him. And whilst chasing his dog, he passed by the arbor, the twigs of which Daphnis had covered with lime, and seeing the bird-catcher, his spoils on his shoulder, about to set off home, he forgot his dinner and the dog. "'God bless thee, my son!' cried he, and fell upon Daphnis's shoulder, and after kissing him, he led him by the hand into the house. When the twain saw one another, they were overcome, and nearly fell, but they kept steady on their legs, and with calm faces bade each other good day, kissed, and the embrace was propitious, for each supported the other, and a swoon was avoided." and Daphnis's hope being thereby exceeded, for he had not only seen but kissed Chloe, he sat down by the fire, and whilst throwing his great spoil of thrushes and pigeons on the table, he told the story to the company. How, bored and wearied by remaining within doors day after day, he had gone forth to catch birds. Some he had taken with springs and snares, and others with lime, as they fought with one another for the myrtle and ivy berries. He was praised by all for his wit, food was laid before him, and they bade him eat. And Chloe was told to pour out drink, which she did willingly for all, serving Daphnis the last, for she pretended anger against him for having come so near to her, and for having nearly left without having seen or spoken to her. All the same, before she poured out wine for him, she drank from the cup, and thirsty though he was, he drank slowly, so that he might lengthen out the pleasure. Not long after were gone all the bread and meat on the table, and the company, having taken their seats, fell to asking Daphnis for news of Myrtile and Laemon, saying that it was a rare good fortune for them to have such a staff as he to support them in their old age. Daphnis was not sorry to hear himself praised, and the rather when he was praised in the presence of his cloy, but when they told him that he must remain with them this day, and the day after, because on the morrow they were sacrificing to Bacchus, he felt very near to adoring them instead of the god. He emptied his wallet of many cakes and fell to plucking the birds he had caught for supper. Once more the fire was lighted, the wine was drawn, and the table spread. And as soon as the night had fallen, they began to eat, and after eating, they told stories and sang songs, till sleep compelled them to their beds, Chloe with her mother, and Daphnis with Trias. But night brought her no more than thoughts of Daphnis, with whom she would spend the next day, and Daphnis deemed it a great good fortune to sleep even with the father of his Chloe, whom he embraced and kissed more than once, thinking in his dream that he was embracing and kissing Chloe. The morning was very cold, and a north wind came up with it that pierced and burned. When they were all assembled, Dryas sacrificed a yearling goat to Bacchus and lighted a great fire for the cooking of the dinner, and whilst Napi was baking the bread and Dryas was boiling the goat, Chloe and Daphnis were free to go into the arbor and set snares and traps and spread the twigs with bird lime, and whilst they were bird-catching, they kissed each other continually, and between their kisses they spoke. Daphnis said, I came for thee, Chloe. I know that well enough, Daphnis. Because of thee, fair one, I killed these poor birds. What then am I to thee? Hast thou forgotten me? No, I have forgotten nothing. I swear it by the nymphs, whom we shall see again as soon as the snow is melted. 
Ah, Chloe, but the snow is deep. Mayhap I shall melt before it melts. Be not afraid, Daphnis, the sun will be warm, but let the spring come. Ah, would it were already like the fire that burns my heart, wicked one, thou dost mock and cozen me, and one day thou wilt be unfaithful. No, never, by the goats on whom I swore before. In this manner Chloe answered her Daphnis like an echo, neither more nor less. Nay, be called them, and they ran, bringing with them their takings, more numerous than those of yesterday. And after having made libations to Bacchus, they fell to eating with crowns of ivy on their heads. And when they had eaten well, a hymn was sung to Bacchus, and Daphnis was sent forth with a wallet well filled with bread and meat, and they returned to him all the thrushes and stock-doves to bring to Lamon and Myrtle, saying that they could take as many of these as they pleased, as long as winter lasted and the ivy had berries. So did Daphnis leave them, kissing all of them before he kissed Chloe, so that her kiss might remain in his memory distinct and pure. Other excuses were found to return to her, and so the winter was not empty of kisses and amorous pleasures for them both. And at the beginning of the spring the snow melted, the earth reappeared, the grass began to show, and the shepherds went forth again with their flocks to the fields, Chloe and Daphnis leading the way, they being servants of a greater shepherd. And running straight to the nymphs of the cave, then to Pan under the pine, and then to the oak, they sat watching their flocks grazing, kissing the while, and afterwards wandering in search of flowers to weave garlands for the gods. But in response to the sweet breath of Zephyrus, the flowers had only begun to awaken and to open to the heat of the sun. But they found violets and narcissus, lilies of the valley, and other flowers, firstlings of the new season, and from these they wove chaplets, and whilst crowning the images they offered milk freshly drawn from the udders of their yews and she-goats. Then they began to play upon their pipes, as if to provoke a match with the nightingales, who answered them from the bushes, beginning little by little to lament Itis once again, and repeat their warble after a long silence. And then the yews began to bleed, and the lambs to skip and to kneel under the bellies of their mothers. The rams followed the yews that had not yet lambed, and having caught them, leapt, serving one after the other, and the bugs raced after the she-goat, jumping them in the same fashion and butting fiercely for love of them. Each had his own shees and kept guard lest another should do him wrong. And so, by sight and sounds that would have enkindled the fires of Aphrodite in old men, the twain were afflicted and compelled by their own nature to seek more eagerly than they had yet done that ease and content which kisses and embraces did not afford but Daphnis the most, for he, being now lusty and well-filled out, having spent the whole winter within doors doing nothing, thrilled after the kiss, and was big, as the phrase runs, for embraces, more curious in every one, more hardy than he ever was before, pressing Chloe to grant him all he asked for, and to lie with him flesh to flesh longer than was their custom. For, said he, that is the one thing of Philetus's counsels that remains untried, the one and only medicine that soothes the pain of love. Chloe asked what else they could do but kiss and lie together as they were in their clothes, and what he thought he might do if they were to lie together naked. 
that which the rams do to the yews, and the bags to the she-goats. Thou hast seen that, after the jump, the yo runs no longer from the ram, they graze together, assuaged and content, so there is of a certainty a sweetness unknown to us, a sweetness that surpasses the bitterness of love. But has not seen, said she, that the rams and the yos and the bugs and the she-goats, whilst tasting of the sweetness, do not lie together but taste while standing up, the rams leaping on the yos, the yos receiving them on their backs. Yet thou wouldst have me lie on the ground with thee, and naked. Are our beasts not clothed in wool and hair more closely than I am in these garments? He believed her, and lay beside her, and for a long time he lay doing nothing, for he was without knowledge how to do that which he desired ardently to do. He lifted her up, and endeavoured to imitate the goat, but failing from behind as he had done in front, he sat down beside her and began to weep, for it was sad to find that he knew less about the ways of love than a top. Not far away there was one who farmed his own land, a man called Cromis, already past middle age, somewhat broken and overworn. He lived with a young woman, dainty and blooming, come from the town, named Lycanium, who seeing Daphnis pass every morning, leading his flocks to pasture and returning with them in the evening to the fold, was taken with a longing to have him for her lover, and began to woo him with presents and to watch for him, till one day, catching him alone, she gave him a flute, some honeycombs, and a wallet made of deerskin. But she did not dare to open her mind to him, for she divined his love for Chloe. He was always with her, and she had seen them exchanging smiles and signs. So one morning, after telling Cromis that she was going to see a neighbor in childbed, she followed the twain step by step, and from behind some bushes she saw all they did, heard all they said, and, marking how Daphnis wept, was moved with sorrow for the twain, and forthright began to look on the occasion as a double one for doing good, to help them, and to ease her own desire. And this was her device. On the morrow she spoke again to Cromis of her friend who was still in labor, but went to the oak under which were Daphnis and Chloe, and feigning the troubled housewife. Alas, my friend, she said to Daphnis, I beg thee to come to my aid. Of my twenty goslings an eagle has taken the finest, but since his burden was heavy, the eagle was not able to carry it to the rocks above us, where he has his airy, and has fallen with it into this very wood, and I implore thee, Daphnis, by the nymphs and Pan yonder, to come with me. I am frightened to go alone. Help me to get my gosling back, and peradventure thou shalt kill the eagle that rapes away thy lambs and thy kids. Chloe can watch the two flocks a while. Thy she-goats know her as well as thee, and Daphnis, suspecting nothing, jumped up and, crook in hand, went away after Lyconium, who took him into the thickest part of the wood near to his spring-head, and having asked him to sit down, she said, Daphnis, thou lovest Chloe. The nymphs came last night and told me of the tears thou didst weep yesterday, and commanded me to free thee from thy trouble by teaching thee that love is more than kissing and embracing, and more than all that the rams and the bugs can do. It is something more, and something sweeter, 
and if thou wouldst be done with the worry that is upon thee, and find the ease that thou art in search of, thou hast only to apprentice thyself to me, brave young lad, and for love of the nymphs I will show thee what love is. At this Daphnis lost his head. So glad was he, poor village boy, young and amorous, and throwing himself on his knees before Lyconium, he joined his hands in prayer and begged of her to teach him at once the sweet craft of love, so that he might have his desire with Chloe. And as if it were some great and marvellous secret, he promised her a kid at the tit, fresh cheeses, cream, and a she-goat with them. And Lyconium, seeing him even more simple and natural than she had imagined, began to instruct him, and in this manner... She ordered him to sit close to her and to kiss her as he and Chloe were accustomed to kiss each other, and whilst kissing her to embrace her and to lie on the ground beside her. And as he was sitting by her, kissing her and lying beside her, she, finding him ready, raised him up, slipped beneath him, and put him in the way that he had long sought. And then, nature coming to his aid, the natural was accomplished. No more was done, so finished the amorous lesson. Daphnis, as innocent as before, was running to Chloe to teach her what he had learned, as if he was afraid he should forget it. But Lyconium detained him. Thou must know, Daphnis, that being a grown woman thou hast not hurt me. For another man, a long while back, taught me what I have taught thee, and for his pains he had my maidenhead. But Chloe, when she will struggle with thee, will cry out, and will weep, and will bleed as if she had been killed. But do not be afraid, and when she would give herself to thee, bring her here, so that if she cries out, nobody will hear, and if she weeps, nobody will see, and if she bleeds, she can wash herself at the spring. But never forget that it was I, and not Chloe, that made thee a man. After having given him this piece of counsel, Lyconium left him and crossed over the wood, looking from side to side, as if seeking her gosling. And Daphnis remained thinking of what she had told him, eased of his earlier eagerness, and uncertain whether he should trouble Chloe with anything more than kisses and embraces. He did not wish her to cry out, for to do so would seem to him like the act of an enemy, nor did he wish to make her weep, for to do so would be a sign that he was hurting her, nor did he wish to make her bleed, for being a novice he dreaded blood, and did not know that an issue of blood could be but from a wound. So he returned from the wood resolved to take their usual pleasure, and coming to where she sat, weaving a chaplet of violets, he told her a story of how he had saved Lyconium's gosling from the talons of the eagle. Then, taking her in his arms, he kissed her as Lyconium had kissed him during their enjoyment, for that he thought could be done without danger. Chloe put upon his head the chaplet she had woven, and at the same time kissed his hair, which to her smelled sweeter than the violets, and then gave him his wallet filled with dried raisins and some bread, very often taking the bread and fruit from his mouth, just as a little bird takes it from his mother's beak. And whilst they ate together, having less thought for food than for their kisses, they spied a fishing boat passing by. There was no wind and the sea was calm. Wherefore the oars were put out, and the crew rowed with all diligence, for they were bringing their fish to some rich man's house in Mytilene, 
and wish to show it fresh just come out of the sea, and to beguile their weariness according to the custom of mariners, one of them sang a sea-song, the cadence of the song determining the beat of the oars, the others, like a choir, uniting at intervals with the voice of the singer. When they crossed an open stretch of the sea, the sound was lost in space, but when, rounding a rocky point, they entered a crescent-shaped bay, the sound came loudly to the shore, and the burden of the song was heard clearly. For in the inmost part of the bay, a rocky cloud caught the sound as if in an instrument and gave it back again with a voice of its own, both the noise of the oars and the sailors chanting. It was a delightsome hearing, the voice from the sea ever coming the first and the land voice lingering so much the longer as it had begun later. Now Daphnis, who was accustomed to the mystery of echoes, sat with his eyes fixed on the sea, taking pleasure in watching the boat disappear into the distance, like a bird into the air, and sought to remember the song sufficiently to play it on his flute again. But Chloe, never having heard the resonance of the voice that is called echo, turned her head now seaward, when the fishers sang, and now towards the woods and valleys to see who it was that answered. And when the fisher-folk being gone, all was silent on the sea and on land, Chloe asked Daphnis if behind the rocky point there was another sea, another boat, and other rowers that sang. He smiled sweetly, and yet more sweetly he kissed her, and putting on her head the wreath of violets, began to tell her the story of Echo, asking her for the telling of it ten more kisses. There are, my darling, many sorts of nymphs, there are the nymphs of the woods and the nymphs of the fields and of waters. All are beautiful and all are learned in the art of song. And a daughter of one of them was called Echo. Mortal, for she was born of a mortal father and of a beauty befitting the daughter of a beautiful mother. She was reared by the nymphs and taught by the muses who showed her how to play the pipe and the flute and to strike chords on the lyre and the cithern and all the art of song. So when she came to womanhood, she danced with the nymphs and sang with the muses. But she fled from all males, from gods, as well as men, loving better her virginity than all else. For this, Pan was angry with her, jealous because she sang so well, and vexed for he was without hope of ever being allowed to enjoy her beauty. So he sent a madness among the shepherds and the goat herds of the country, and furious as wolves or mad dogs, they threw themselves upon the poor girl, tore her to pieces, while she still sang, casting hither and thither her broken but still songful limbs. The earth, for the nymph's sake, kept her limbs, preserved her song, and ever since, by the will of the muses, repeats all voices and sounds, just as the maiden did when alive, men, gods, beasts, instruments, and Pan himself she mocks when he plays on the pipe, and when he hears her, he follows her through the hills, no longer from jealousy, but curious to learn who is the hidden pupil whom he knows not and never can find, but who repeats his music so beautifully. And Daphnis, having ended his story, Chloe kissed him, not only ten times as he had asked, but many times more, for Echo repeated, or very nearly, all that he had said, as if she wished to bear witness to the truth of his story. The springtime had ended, summer was commencing and the heat increased daily, but with the season new pastimes. Daphne swam in the rivers, 
Chloe bathed in the springs. He sought on his flute to imitate the music of the wind in the branches of the pines, and she vied with the nightingales, and together they hunted chicalas, gathered grasshoppers, plucked flowers, shook the branches and ate the fruits that fell, and lay under the same goatskin, flesh to flesh. Then Chloe might easily have been made a woman if Daphnis had not been frightened at the thought of blood. He had such great fear of it, and was in such doubt that he might not always be master of himself, that he did not suffer Chloe to be naked often, which caused her much surprise. But she was afraid to ask him the reason for this forbiddance. A first trouble, but others followed quickly, for during the summer a great press of lovers was about Chloe, come from all sides to ask her in marriage of Dryas. Some brought presents and all made such great promises that Napi, stirred by greed, began to talk of marrying her, saying that so tall a girl should no longer remain at home, and that if they did not hasten to give her a husband, she would, peradventure, whilst watching her flocks in the fields, lose her maidenhead and marry a shepherd for apples or roses. Napi said it would be more to her advantage and theirs to make her the mistress of the house of some good man, and to take what he offered to lay by for their own son, for lately a little boy had been born to them, and Dryas was often swayed by the reasons she gave, for Chloe's suitors offered more valuable presents than was usual to give her a simple shepherdess, but Dryas had always in mind that his daughter was born to a higher lot than a peasant's, and one day might find her true parents and make everybody happy. So the wars, though they came laden with presents, could get no direct answer from him, but were put off from season to season. And when the goings and comings of the suitors and all that was said of them came to Chloe's knowledge, and seeing the presents about the house, she was greatly troubled, but withheld the cause of her trouble from Daphnis. But he pressed her and importuned her so to tell him that she began to feel at last that by withholding the story she was causing him more suffering than if she told him everything. So she told him all, the number of the words and the presents they offered, and the words that Napi had used to bring over Dryas, and how at last he had come to think with her, asking only that his answer might be remitted to the next vintage. And on hearing these tidings, Daphnis was nigh bereft of his wit. And sitting on the ground he wept, saying he would die if Chloe no longer came out to the fields to watch the flocks with him. And not only he, but the yaws and the she-goats would die of grief if they lost their shepherdess. But when he had thought the matter over, his courage began to return to him. And he resolved to go to the father and declare himself one of her suitors, in good hope that he would be far preferred to the others. One thing, however, troubled him. Layman was not rich. His hopes fell, but he was resolved. No matter what might happen, he would ask for Chloe for wife. And Chloe was of the same mind. All the same, he did not dare to speak to Layman, but instead confided his love to Myrtle boldly, telling her he wished to wed Chloe. Myrtle spoke to her husband that very night, but Layman was by no means pleased at the thought of wedding Daphnis to a shepherdess, and he asked his wife if she had forgotten the marks and the signs on the clothing that the boy had been found wrapped in, tokens and testimonies of his noble birth, whereby he would be recognized one day or another by his parents, who would not only give them their freedom, 
but make them masters of larger and richer lands than those they held as serfs. But Myrtilly, thinking that the boy, being in love, might attempt his own life if he lost all hope of getting what he desired, withheld from him Laman's reason for refusing his consent. We are poor, my lad, she said, and have need of a girl who will bring money to the house rather than take money out of it. It is the other way about with her parents. They are rich and would like to get a husband who will give and give again. But go to Chloe, coax her, and let her coax her father, saying that he must not ask too much of us and to give her to thee in marriage. Without doubt she loves thee and would lie more willingly with thee than with any one of the rich wars, as ugly as monkeys, every one of them. In this way she thought she had parried Daphnis cleverly, for she took it for granted that Dryas, with all the rich suitors, as it were, in the hollow of his hand, would never give his consent, and Daphnis, unable to find fault with her answer, and seeing himself with little hope of getting Chloe, did what all poor lovers do on such occasions. He began to weep and to call upon the nymphs to help him. And they, on the next night as he was asleep, appeared to him in the same form and in the same manner as before. The eldest among them said, Another god has charge of the marrying of Chloe. We will give thee gifts wherewith to bribe Dryas. The Methymnean ship whose hauser was eaten by thy goats a year ago was carried by the winds far from land. But a storm coming from the sea in the night, she was driven ashore on the rocks. All that was in her was lost except a purse of money, three hundred crowns, which the waves cast up with some wreckage and it is now hidden in seaweed near to a dead dolphin, unknown to anybody, for everybody travelling that way ran from the stench. And go thou and take the purse. It is enough for thee now not to seem a beggar, but in time to come thou shalt be rich. As soon as these words were spoken, the nymphs vanished with the night, and dawn began. Daphnis rose very joyful and drove his flock to the fields with great whistling, and having kissed Chloe and saluted the nymphs, he made to the shore as though he would refresh himself in the spray, and on the sand, close to the sea, he walked, looking for the three hundred crowns. And he was not to have much trouble, for presently the stench of the dead dolphin caught him in the nose, and following it he came to a pile of seaweed, in which he searched, and found in it the well-filled purse, which he put into his wallet, not returning homeward, till he had adored and thanked the nymphs and also the sea, for shepherd though he was, on that day the sea seemed to him tenderer and sweeter than the earth, for it had helped him to win Chloe for wife. Without delay then, and deeming himself richer than the peasants of the neighborhood, richer than any living man, he went to Chloe to announce the dream he had had. And after showing her the purse he had found, he asked her to watch his flock until his return. Then he swaggered off to Dryas, whom he found threshing wheat in the barn with his wife Naby, and very boldly broke into the subject of the marriage. Give me Chloe to wife. I know how to play the flute, how to prune a vine, how to plant trees. I know how to plough the earth and to present the wheat to the farm. Chloe herself will bear witness that I know how to manage a flock. For a beginning I was given fifty she-goats, and in two years they have increased to a hundred. Moreover, I have furnished the flock with ten he-goats, tall, fine animals, 
Heretofore, we let our she-goats elsewhere. I am young, and your neighbor, and nobody has a word to say against me. A she-goat suckled me, and Chloe was suckled by a yo. Being so much better than the others, I will not be behind them in gifts. All they can give are a few she-goats, a few sheep, a couple of mangy oxen, and hardly enough wheat to feed three chickens, whereas here are three hundred crowns for you. One thing, however, I ask, that nobody shall be told, not even my father layman. And saying these words, he gave Dryas the money, embraced and kissed him. And Dryas and Napi, seeing such a large sum of money, more than they had ever expected to see, promised him that he should have Chloe for a wife, and charged themselves to gain Laemon's consent. And leaving Gaffnis and Napi to drive the oxen over the threshing floor, separating the wheat from the chaff, Dryas put by the purse in the place where the tokens were stored, and went off to Laemon and Myrtali to ask for their boy in marriage, therein reversing the usual custom. He found them measuring barley just taken from the fan, all the while complaining that it was with difficulty they gathered as much as they had sown. He comforted them, saying it was the same everywhere, and then asked them to give Daphnis as a husband to Chloe, saying that though the others had offered and given much for his consent, he did not want anything from them, but was ready to give a little of his own, for they were, he said, reared together, and whilst watching their flocks in the fields had fallen into such friendship that it would be a hardship to separate them now, and of all, they having now come to an age when they might very well lie together. He put forward all these reasons and many others with the favour of a man who had received three hundred crowns for his pleading. Layman could no longer excuse himself on the ground of poverty, for Dryas and Naby did not think themselves above him, nor could he plead Daphnis's age as an objection. The lad was near to manhood, and yet he would not utter the real truth, which was that Daphnis's parentage would not admit of such an alliance. But after having thought a little while, he said, Of good stock you must be indeed to prefer your neighbours to strangers and to choose honest poverty rather than riches, and I pray that Pan and the nymphs shall recompense you. For myself, I desire this marriage as much as you do. I should be mad seeing myself fallen into years and needing help more than ever, if I did not look upon this alliance as a great piece of luck for me. Chloe, too, is much sought after, and is fair, and in her bloom, and good in every way. But being a serf, I can dispose of nothing. My master must be told, and his consent obtained. Come, then, let us postpone the wedding till the next autumn, for he will be here then. Such is the report in the town, and will give his consent, I have no doubt of it. And till then, they must love each other as brother and sister." But I should like to tell thee that the young man thou wouldst have for son-in-law is of better blood than we are. And that said, he kissed Dryas and poured out wine, for it was already undern, and went with him part of the road, treating him with all friendliness. But Dryas had not listened heedlessly to the words Laemon spoke before pouring out the wine, and returned home wondering who Daphnis might be. A she-goat was his nurse, and the gods have charge of him. He is beautiful, and in nothing is beholden to that flat-nosed old man and bald-pated old woman. He found when he needed them three hundred crowns, and it is hard to believe that a goat-herd could have put up so many nuts. Is he, like Chloe, a foundling? 
Did Laman find him with marks and signs upon his throttles, just as I found them upon hers? O Pan and you nymphs, grant that it may be thus, and that the end of the adventure be that Daphnis will find his parents and something of Chloe's secret too. So did Dryas go his way deep in discourses and dreams till he came to his threshing floor, where he found the lad eager to hear what Laman's answer might be. After bidding him be of good cheer, Dryas addressed him as his future son-in-law, promising him his wedding at the next vintage, giving him his hand in pledge that Chloe should belong to nobody but to him. And Daphnis, without waiting for food or drink, swifter than thought, ran to Chloe with the good news, and there and then kissed her, before everybody, as he had a right to do, she being his betrothed, and at once began to help her in her work. He milked the she-goats and yews into the pails, set the cheeses in baskets, put her lambkins under the udders, doing the same duty for his kids. And when all that was done, they washed themselves and ate and drank and went in search of the ripe fruits, of which there was great abundance, for it was after August, and the richness of September had brought ripe pears in plenty, medlars and azaroles, quinces falling from the branches, others hanging, waiting to be plucked, those on the ground having a sweeter scent, and those on the branches a ruddier bloom, the former smelling like wine, the latter shining like gold. Among the apple trees there was one whose fruit had all been gathered. Neither fruit nor leaves had it, only naked branches and one apple hanging from the highest branch, a marvellous apple, sweet-smelling, itself alone worth many for its fragrance. But he who had gathered the others had not dared to climb so high, or was careless to strike it down, an apple peradventure kept for an amorous shepherd. No sooner had Daphnis caught sight of this apple than he was set on climbing to gather it. Chloe said she would not have him gather it, but he paid no attention to her, wherefore, unlistened to and vexed, she left him, and Daphnis, climbing, reached the treetop and the apple which he gathered and brought to her. And seeing her face discontented, he spoke these words. This apple, Chloe, my dear, was born of beautiful summer days. A fine tree nourished it. The sun ripened it. Luck has kept it from the gatherer. I should have been blind indeed not to have seen it, and stupid having seen it to have left it on the bough, to fall later upon the ground to be crushed by the feet of the cattle or poisoned by a serpent as he went by or to hang on high, desired, admired, be praised, to be spoiled at last by time. Aphrodite won an apple as the prize of her beauty, and an apple I award thee. The judges, too, of her and thee are alike. He was a shepherd, I am a goat-herd. Saying these words, he laid the apple on Chloe's lap, and she, when he bent over her, kissed him so sweetly, that Daphnis did not regret having climbed so high for a kiss that to him was worth more than a golden apple. End of section 3